Adams. Welcome to Hell, Choose Your Default Program. You'll soon learn in this podcast why this subtitle was chosen. And let's go. Follow my train of thoughts and don't get lost. The default programs are awaiting. I'm Vinam and you're listening to The Nixers Podcast. What's a default program? Default for what? What does default even mean? Probably something that happens without your interaction. A choice made for you when you don't want to choose. The usual, normal, most plausible way of handling things. This sounds like a good definition, right? So a default program is chosen automatically to launch something. But uh, launch what exactly? What's this something? Files? Uh, what? Well, there's nothing really else on Unix than files. So the default programs would launch files. Fair enough, that's simple so far. Now, let's go back in time. The, the, the first thought that came to my mind when thinking of default programs was environment variables. And I did dedicated the whole podcast episode to environment variables in the past, and you can go back to it for more information. Okay, so why did I think of that? Remember, there's something very common on the command line, because everything is text, text editors, obviously. There are two environment variables that uses those. They are for the default choices of text editor. Uh, the editor environment variables and the visual environment variable. So the difference is that visual is for full screen editing, like Emacs and Vim, and editor is for more advanced terminal editing, like add. So uh, editor is more command line oriented and visual more visually oriented. Programs that want to open a text file will refer to those environment variables as the default text editors. Another one of those prevalent things on the command line is the shell itself. And that's in my opinion the oldest and first kind of default program. Quote. The default shell is chosen via the CHSH utility. We're also executing things on the command line. We know they are executable because they have the executable bit that is set. But what about scripts like shell or Perl scripts, for example? How's the default handling for that? With what are they executed? That's what the ENV and utility is helping with. It's helping in selecting the most appropriate default environment to run the program in. Its main usage is to modify the environment. However, most of the time, ENV is used at the top of scripts and a shebang. And this shebang is like a, a hashtag and an exclamation mark added at the top of the script which originated between version 7 and version 8 of Unix at Bell Labs. And it's used at the top of scripts and a shebang to launch the correct interpreter. The environment isn't really changed here. How does it achieve that? By searching the path environment variable. And we had quite an argument about it on the forums. You can read our opinions there. The core of the argument was about the issues related to and actually it was a thread that linked to a blog post, and usually blog posts are for nagging. The problems the author 
of that post uh, was nagging about. His concern was that the path environment variable might not point to the right interpreter and that the env can only take one flag or argument, amongst other things. But isn't that what a default program launcher should do? Get the first most appropriate program to run it? Get the best env in this case? That's what we're using it for launching with the current environment defaults. So that's for scripts. Nowadays, we don't only have one simple sort of text file. And not only text files, we have binary data, images, etc. We need to open those. And environment variables aren't the way to go. It's too inflexible, it's too stiff, it's exactly what another operating system uses. There are way too many different file types. I've linked a little list of the in the show notes to give uh, an upper view, an overview of all the different file types that exist. So how are those handled? Unix doesn't have file types at the kernel level like other operating systems, such as Windows. That's partly because of the use of the ELF, which don't include it inside of them. It doesn't have to examine the extension to know that a file is executable or not, for instance, or that it's an image. File extensions are not imposed. We also don't have to do most of the time the association manually, like other operating system. It seems to happen magically. Then how the heck do you know what type or format is a file and how to open it? That's where media types enter. What are they? Let's go to the wiki definition. A media type, also MIME type and content type, is a two-part identifier for file formats and format content transmitted on the internet. The Internet Assigned Number Authority, IANA, is the official authority for the standardization and publication of these classifications. Media types were first defined and request for comment 2045 and November 1996, at which point they were named MIME, Multipurpose Internet Mail Extension Types. So it's a file format or content or type identifier that uses a standard format called RFC 2045. Simple enough. History-wise, the name MIME, Multipurpose Internet Mail Extensions format comes from the email format and RFC 822. It's a sort of meta format to embed information within this format and don't confuse it with MIME types. That means uh, something else today because they're used outside of emails. So what does this format looks like? A media type is composed of a type, a subtype or extension and optional parameters. The type and subtypes are separated by a slash. So it looks like type slash extension. For example, an HTML file might be designated by text slash HTML or for PDF application slash PDF and for PNG images image slash PNG. The first part is the more abstract top level while the second part of the MIME type is more like expanding faster with all the new uh, subtypes, for example, with new application or data encoding standards. Actually, the currently registered top-level types aren't that many, and let's name them application, 
audio, example, image, message, model, multiport, text, video, inode, they aren't that many. Very nice to have standards for categorizing file types, but so what? How does that help? How is it used across the system? And let's open useful parentheses and talk about the role of the free desktop organization. What's the free desktop organization and what the heck does it have to do with what we're talking about today? It is a project to work on interoperability and shared based technology for free software desktop environment for the X window system, X11, on Linux and other Unix-like operating system. Uh, and some, they have sort of standards for all the little details of a full-fledged desktop environments, from where the recycle bin is to how windows should communicate. From that definition, we might think that it looks like it's totally X-specific only for X11, but um, uh, that's sort of like comprehensible at this point, but still. How do they put this in place? First, they have a list of standards you can read about online, and they're, they're not really boring standards, they're surprisingly cool standards. Other than that, they have a bunch of utilities. So they have standards and utilities. And the relevant ones for us in this podcast are the shared MIME info, which is a huge database of common MIME types and information, which we'll discuss in a bit. They have the libmime type, which lets you interact with mime types, and the xdg-util, which are the implementation of a bunch of desktop functions, such as interacting with the mime types in our case. And notice that xdg in front of the util. That's because that once was the name of the free desktop organization. They were formerly known as the xdesktop group. Let's go back on topic and talk about how does the system handles and knows that the file is of a certain MIME type and then execute it. Here's the generic overview of how it's solved. The MIME type of a file is found and then there's an association between the MIME type of the file and something that executes it, which is the desktop entry. The first step involves detecting the file type. There are two common ways of determining the file type. Using the file name extension, for example .html or .jpg, or using the so-called magic bytes at the start of the file, so it's the first uh, few bytes of a file, you read them. Uh, the first method is very simple and fast, but inaccurate if the file is not named correctly. The second is more accurate, but slower. So yeah, there's a list of extensions and of magic bytes that come with the free desktop package I mentioned earlier, the shared MIME info. So on the system, there's a database of MIME type information with default generic MIME info from the free desktop package, for example, and new ones registered via installed applications desktop files, which we'll discuss later. For now, just remember that those desktop entries are just a sort of meta or description of the executables. The location of that MIME database is usually an user share MIME for the global database and then the home directory .local share MIME for specific user database. The default huge fill up of standard MIMES from the free desktop that I talked about are in user share MIME packages freedesktop 
www.ubuntu.org.xml. And a little warning here, the database files are not meant to be edited directly. But if you ever happen to want to edit them manually or add new entries, you can use the update-mime-database and the location of the, of the mimes. So from that, we know how we can tell which mime type a file is. Yet we didn't talk about default programs to execute those types yet. So let's do that. The lookup process happens in two directions. On one side you have the list of applications with the list of MIME types they can handle and on the other side you have the list of MIME types with the default application to execute it. The definition for the application metadata is stored in something called a desktop entry. Let's start with the first way, applications with the list of MIME types they support. You can find those desktop entries in the location users share applications for global ones or in the home directory .local share applications for user specific ones. They are the files that end with the extension .desktop. And I won't discuss the format of that file, but I just say this. This file has a lot of metadata about the applications from the icon to the executable to if it needs a terminal and if it's a terminal it will open it with the default set terminal emulator to its category and what interests us the most here and the metadata are the supported MIME types. So yeah, the desktop entries can have a list of supported MIME types it can handle. But it would be too much of a pain to loop through all the files, through all those desktop files, to know which applications open which file type. Thus, there's a simplified file in the same directory called mimeinfocache that contains just that, all the mime types with a list of the applications that supports it. It's in a sort of block called the mimecache group. And these files keep track of which mime types are associated with which desktop files overall. Here's a big deal. A file manager can show you that list of supported application when you want to open a file or just refer to that first one in the list as default when it's not specified. And another bene here, if you want to add your own desktop entries, you'll have to update the database, this file, mimeinfocache, by running update-desktop-database in the location of that file. This is also automatically run by the package manager when you install new application or when you update application or remove them. There are also more specific MIME settings per application that are stored in .keys, files and MIME files located in user share, MIME info, etc. But this is really beyond the scope of this podcast. Now talking about defaults, let's mention that everything in this podcast, all the settings and programs, etc., can be set as default for new user if you, the changes are done and slash etc slash scale, the skeleton used for new users' home directories. Some comments that are useful with desktop files are desktop-file-install and desktop-file-edit. Respectively, installation and addition of desktop files that application and that desktop. Back on topic, how do we do the reverse MIME types to desktop entries? We indicate that in a file called mimeapps.list. 
and a group also like the block I mentioned earlier uh, and a group called default applications and finally talking about desktop applications for a given MIME type. Remember in the last section we said that in the file MIME info cache we were filling the MIME cache group. It's the same notion here of grouping and the file the, they're written this way. The MIME types followed by an equal sign and a list of semicolon separated desktop entries files. When a program is executed it will try the first entry and move to the next if there was an issue with the first one. So remember we also said that desktop entries can have the setting terminal set to true and uh, it will launch it with the default terminal so that's where it's set the exo-terminal-emulator.desktop on XFC for example. There could be many MIME apps that list around the file system and different locations. So they could be system-wide, they could be per user, they could be custom location used by some programs or desktop environments. And if an entry isn't found in one of the location, it will move to the next. And if no entry at all are found, they fall back to the method mentioned earlier in the previous section using the most preferred desktop file associated with the MIME type. And as a note, the MIME apps.list can have other sections other than uh, the section mentioned earlier, default applications, such as added association and remove associations, both for whitelisting and blacklisting MIME type desktop association. So there are really, really a lot of places that are looked up for the MIME apps.list and you can see it in the transcript or the show notes because it will be too long to mention them. Another thing that you should take in consideration here and where the real mess starts is when desktop environment wrap up default applications inside desktop files. For example, XFC has the utility exo-open and exo-preferred applications to set the default application for certain tasks. So all the tasks point to desktop entries that start with exo dash. For, in, for instance, they have the exo dash web dash browser. And in that file, it simply calls exo dash open dash dash launch web browser. Where does exo open fetch the default program from? Who knows? It took me quite a long time to found that it's in the home directory dot config slash xfce4 slash helpers dot rc. And it took me really, really a lot of time. And if you thought that was hell, then you need to hear that this differs from every desktop environment to desktop environment. Then the worst thing is that they might even interfere with one another. So why do that when you already have the whole standard for MIME types? I don't know. I really don't know. What about making changes to set the default program? I recommend backing up or only doing it at the user level to not mess up the things. You could update the MIME types and desktop files or you could just use a program that comes integrated with your desktop environment. Or I'm not sure of it, but you could use other kinds of graphical wrappers. And there are a bunch of useful comments you can use. And let's mention utilities, comments and tools. Uh, coming with the free desktop, you have update desktop database to update the desktop entries database. You have XDG MIME, with, uh, which uh, lets you query 
file types from files and it returns uh, the MIME types. You have uh, the XDG settings to get, for example, the default browser, which uh, in fact desktop environment should use instead of their specific messed up things. You have uh, the well-known file command, which you can pass the dash dash mime dash type argument to get back the mime type. You have some Perl scripts such as mime type, which can uh, give you the mime type of a file, obviously. And you have mime open, which uh, opens the file with the default uh, program. And if you pass it the dash a argument, it lets, it lets you uh, choose uh, which desktop entries open the, the, the file. And you can also change the default program that will open the file at this point. And you have the fish shell common called mimedb, which uh, also does most of the previous things. So that's it about default programs. I guess you have a big overview of it. There are many places where you can set default programs from the environment variable, from the command line, from the MIME types and from the desktop environment itself, which is pretty messed up at the de desktop environment level. So it's more flexible than other operating system because you don't have the default program set at the operating system level. It's not hard coded. And the lookup at the MIME type level is very flexible. And it's just a relation between MIME types and desktop entries. And that's very simple to, to understand. Let's move on to the section where we talk about what we did last week and what we did this week. Uh, last week we had a conversation with uh, Adam called the Chocolate Milk. It was a really great discussion. We talked about many things. Unicomp, Plan 9, and Chocolate Milk. And the core the core of the discussion was about Plan 9, how it's uh, both influenced by Unix and also influencing new Unix-like operating systems. So that was about it last week. Now this week, what did I personally do? I programmed our little game as a gift to uh, my girlfriend's niece's birthday. And also, also uh, I messed up with the mimes. I did some changes on my system and I had to uninstall some stuff to get back to the default setting because it was really, really messed up. And, and other than that, I updated the certificate of Nixers.net with a Let's Encrypt. I moved from an open, another one, I think, I don't remember the name. And that was, uh, that's it. As usual, if you like what you're listening to, you can contribute in multiple ways. The first easy way is to just give your appreciation on IRC or on the forum's extended podcast threads. It uh, gives us a push to know we're going in the right direction. The second way to contribute is by adding some relevant information on those extended threads. A fourth way would be to help me fill the transcript on some episodes that are missing some. 
And the last way would be to join me on the podcast. And you can do that by asking for a podcast key on IRC or on the forums. And with that key, you can log into the user interface on podcast.nexers.net. And you, on this interface, you set your available time for the next week. And then the best time, the best common time is chosen. And you can join at that time. And remember that you can find all the episodes on this little short link, podcast.nexers.net slash what, W-H-A-T. Or you can check the feed URL that I just mentioned, podcast.nexers.net slash F-E-E-D, podcast.nexers.net slash feed. So that's it, the default program's hell. The music is by Crown Studio and it's Creative Commons, it's really cool and it's called Crashed. It was Vina for the Nixers podcast. <laughs>